and welcome to the Superior Rag. I'm Andrew Oliver. This is a podcast about 1920s and 30s jazz, blues, stomp, swing, and I hope you've been enjoying the side of the week every Friday here for the past few weeks. Today we have a full episode, a great interview with one of my longtime musical collaborators here in London, the great drummer Nicholas D. Ball. Nick and I have been playing together for a number of years. We've played together in the Vitality Five along with other groups and projects. And today I wanted to talk to Nick about uh, vintage drumming styles. I asked him to select some of his favorite drummers from the 1920s who are perhaps underappreciated. And so we're going to hear about three very different and interesting musicians, Stan King, Jasper Taylor, and Vic Burton. And we're going to talk about Nick's uh, amazing research on the history of jazz drumming and of jazz drums themselves. He has a great collection of instruments, vintage gear, collapsible bass drums, all sorts of cool percussion. And uh, he's made an unbelievable website called drumsinthe20s.com, which uh, is a huge resource of information uh, about jazz drumming. So we're going to talk about that as well. Just before we delve in here, I want to remind everyone to stay tuned to The Superior Rag, the first and third Wednesday of the month, wherever you get your podcasts, a full episode with interviews, history, old records, lots of things coming up in the next few months. So stay tuned to The Superior Rag, the first and third Wednesday of the month, and every Friday, a side of the week, specially selected by me or one of my friends to kickstart your weekend in style with some hot jazz. So here we are with Nick Ball. Thanks a lot for doing this, man. I'm looking forward to hearing about... Uh, some of these drummers you've chosen listening to some records. But before that, uh, I'd like to start with the website, drumsinthe20s.com, which is an amazing compendium of information. Can you just uh, tell us a bit about the website and how it came into existence? Of course. Um, well, it sort of came about because I suddenly became exposed to people like yourself who were really, really serious about this music and uh, knew a lot more than I did about, about your respective instrument. And it really sort of kicked me in the arse and made me think, come on, you know, you need to take this more seriously. I've been kind of coasting along for quite a long time doing something that was vaguely old-timey, you know, jazz drumming based on, you know, various different records I'd heard. But it wasn't specific in the way that uh, people like you or, or you know, the, our other colleagues, Michael and David and, and Martin, can be can be specific and and you know, playing in the styles of not only of the 20s or the early 20s or the late 20s or whatever, but but specific musicians within that um, and were able to, you know, accurately sort of imitate and portray and, and take from and be inspired by particular musicians. And so I thought, OK, well, you know, I need to do this. So um, obviously I had a few, a few books and, and resources already, but I started finding a lot more and going to charity shops and, and well, what you'd call thrift stores, I suppose, and um, second-hand bookshops and really reading around the subject. And so I thought, you know, if I have a website or if I have a sort of a blog type thing um, where I write about these, these people and, and sort of present my findings, as it were, to the, to the world, to the, the, the global digital community, um, then it might motivate me to, to sort of carry on that process and, and dig deeper and deeper and deeper. So I started making a massive list of all the most important bands and which drummers played in those bands. Um, and obviously with the, the Brian Rust um, discographies were hugely helpful, sort of finding exactly who played on which records when and making a almost a kind of massive timeline thing with catalogue of who switched bands when and took over from, who, you know, who and how they all interlinked and who moved which, from which city to which other city at which points and all this sort of stuff. Um, so I started to get a picture of what was going on. And then I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just start, you know. I thought there's no point sitting around until I've finished 
you know, this project because that might be, you know, 10, 20 years down the line by the time I get down to guys who made two sides, one of which was ever released. You know what I mean? And, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully I'll get to that guy in the end, whoever he is. I'm sure there are hundreds of them. Um, you know, who played this one symbol crash at the end of some territory band <laughs> record that no one knows anything about. But yeah, so I thought I'd start with, start with the important guys and sort of work my way through the people. So it's not always in... Um, I've got this list of, you know, if you go on to drumsinthe20s.com, you say I've got this, the main sort of uh, thrust of it is the these hero articles. I write about heroes, you know, so the, the main drummers. Um, and they're not necessarily in the order that everybody would, would have put them in. I tried to start with, you know, guys who I thought were important, you know, Baby Dodds and Zooty Singleton obviously being the sort of the big two who everyone always talks about as the most important and influential drummers in the 20s. And I think you, I wouldn't really argue with that. I think that's probably right. But after that, I sort of tried to follow the, you know, what seemed to be the most important through line whilst also diverting and doing, you know, little features on people who I thought were interesting, but perhaps overlooked or... Um, and there's other sections on there too, right? I mean, it's not just, oh, I mean, the website are. has uh, information about, you know, what I've also found super useful, especially, try, you know, uh, trying to explain things about 20s drumming to people who only know about sort of contemporary jazz drumming are not only the articles about the people, but also the, all that stuff you've written about the uh, gear and, you know, technology of the time, which is something which I think, you know, with, with a lot of instruments is is less relevant. Like, you don't just, you know, A, old pianos mostly don't work and b they're not so different you know old clarinets and saxophones have some differences but fundamentally you can play this you know older style jazz on on any saxophone or clarinet and it'll sound fine but with drums there's such a huge difference i mean it, it drums it evolved really rapidly well that's right i mean it, because jazz and and the drum kit came around around about the same time you know then they were both beginning to evolve out of earlier examples of that thing and earlier sort of progenitors or whatever the word is um, so yeah, you've got a, a new musical style and the instruments on which it's played, certainly in the percussion section are kind of developing hand in hand and, you know, developments in one lead to developments in the other and so on. Um, and obviously you've got, you know, manufacturers coming up with all these weird and wonderful novelty instruments, um, and trying to encourage drummers to use them and be sponsored to, you know, to feature them and stuff, some of which catch on and become established parts of the drum kit like the hi-hat you know in the sort of late 20s early 30s and lots of other ones which just bit the dust and you know are sort of like confined to the dustbin of history um until you know weirdos like me come along and sort of want to revive it a bit but yeah 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 well it's great it's a great compendium i mean everyone should go have a look drums in the 20s.com it's uh it's full of amazing information demonstrations of these things and really great articles on a lot of great drumming heroes so uh, we've picked three people to talk about today, three different drummers of the era that are some of your favorites. We have. And uh, we're going to start with the, the great Stan King. We are. I mean, it, it, these are three who, you know, uh, 20s music aficionados will be f familiar with all of these three names that I've chosen today. But perhaps people who are a little bit less au fait with, with that period of, of jazz might, uh, might not have come across them or, you know, might be interested to hear a bit more about them because I think they're... They've been slightly neglected, some more than others, but they've all three of them perhaps slightly neglected by the mainstream of jazz sort of historiography. So, okay, so Stan King, he's one of one of my favourite uh, drummers from the twenties, without a doubt. He was from New England. He was born sometime around. We're not quite sure. He was born around nineteen hundred, I think. Um, up in Connecticut somewhere. Not much is known about him in his sort of early life, but he first became sort of really famous playing with the California Ramblers, 
um, which some people might know were a sort of very famous and popular white dance band from sort of New York State. And they mainly played sort of like, well, a huge range of stuff, but sort of society dance band music was their their bread and butter, which obviously generally the drums didn't have much of a role. But Stan King was lucky in that um, there were lots of spin-off small group bands that would sort of be drawn from within the California Ramblers organisation and they made lots of spin-off records, you know, sort of sextets and septets and quintets and um, smaller group things where there was more chance for, first of all, fewer instruments so you can actually hear the drums more Um, and second of all, there was more space in the arrangements because it wasn't, you know, a 12-piece band or something. Yeah, right. But there's a couple of really, really nice uh, numbers that you can you can hear Stan King playing in in the sort of early mid twenties, maybe sort of nineteen twenty five. Um, he played in a band called the Goofus Five, which featured the great Adrian Rolini, who'd later be famous uh, playing with Big Spider Beck, amongst others. Um, there's a nice recording of Yes Sir, That's My Baby uh, by the Goofus Five, nineteen twenty five, um, where you hear some classic like mid twenties. Uh, cymbal socking so he's playing on a on a, a sort of medium size I suppose what you'd now call a crash cymbal at that time there weren't really designations of cymbals like that crash ride and you know they were just cymbals Turkish style cymbals or Chinese style cymbals that's all he had um, and he's sort of socking on that with probably with a mallet I think and just sort of keeping time playing the odd you know hard stroke in a, in a when there's a gap or a break you know he'll play a nice crash on it but you know, it's not featured, he doesn't really take solos, he's not a featured drummer in that way. But it's a great sort of example of the way that those sorts of bands, the drums would be used as a supporting sort of part of the texture really. this music was designed at you know tailored towards young people and students in particular sort of reasonably well-off middle-class sort of white students who'd have a, a, a disposable income these records sold you know by the hundreds um college jazz college jazz before dave brubeck before dave brubeck exactly yeah sort of <laughs> preppy and peppy um yeah and yeah the university six were deliberately aimed to uh, sort of capitalize on this market and stan king played in that group too um and there was, they played a great uh, version of the Camel Walk, so maybe ah, we could play yeah, a bit of that. Yeah, great tune. Let's hear some of that, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's probably, you know, a relatively, as you can hear, a relatively thick uh, symbol of probably about 
oh, I don't know, 14 or 15 inches. Played with a mallet. And then, you know, what? You, I mean, there's not really audible bass drum, I suppose, but you imagine he would have been doing that as well. Well, yeah, the trouble is, is you know, as the sort of 20s rolled on, recording engineers got more and more strict about what was allowed on record and what wasn't, and they were worried that the technology wouldn't be able to cope with the overtones of bass drum uh, or even snare drum to a large degree. So you don't really get the full kit being recorded, which is a shame because it means we haven't got much idea what Stan King would have done live with a band like that. And sort of, yeah, 1926 or so, they start relaxing that. Once you've got electrical recording coming in, you know, with, with multiple microphones and, you know, engineers start to get the hang of where to place the microphones that, you know, drummers can use the full kit without uh, distorting everything and knocking everything off. Um, but the weird thing, one of the weird things about Stan King is he vanishes. He's like the most ubiquitous session drummers you can imagine, like a Steve Gadd or a, or a Bernard, Bernard Purdy or someone like that. Someone who's just played on but just about every pop record you can imagine, you know, in a, in a certain period. And then he just vanishes for a year, about a year and a half. 1927, 1928, early 28. We've got no idea where he went. What happened to him? How bizarre. He just vanishes from the discographies. Did he get ill? Was he on tour somewhere? Did he leave the country? I've got absolutely no idea what happened. If anyone knows <laughs> where Stan King was and what he was doing in 1927, please let me know. Anyway, it's just bizarre. But then in 1928, he reappears and he's absolutely transformed. Not only can we hear him much more clearly with the new technology, as we've talked about, but suddenly he's playing like a man possessed. Um, and he's playing with some of the same guys he had been before, but also new people. He plays with um, a lot of stuff with the great Red Nichols, who's a cornet player in New York, and also his mate, uh, who's a trombone player, Miff Mole, uh, and also the Dorsey brothers, amongst others. And they're all, all these guys are like super schooled, um, technical, you know, really e e sort of elegant and, and subtle musicians. They're really playing extremely evolved and um, self-aware, clever, arranged hot jazz. And it's, it's superb. And I think Stan King does a perfect job of bringing the right amount of kind of fire and groove to it, but also with, a you know, obviously a, a huge amount of technique and, and subtlety as well. An excellent example of that, I think particularly the sort of power and excitement that he's suddenly able to to get now that we're able to hear him properly. Um, Miff Mole, the trombone player I mentioned before, his his recording of uh, a tune called That's A Plenty from 1929. Stan King, he's playing uh, hot, you know, breaks on the drums, triplets on the snare drum and lots of amazing Chinese cymbal interjections. And he's interacting with the front line much more like you know, later drummers would in the swing era and beyond. It's, yeah, it's small group jazz as, as we would almost recognise it, you know, from, from a modern day perspective.
And if that wasn't enough for Stan King for you, we can also hear some great stuff he does on uh, a recording with Jimmy Dorsey, an amazing saxophone player, Jimmy Dorsey. Um, really, it's, it's meant to be a feature for, for, for Dorsey, but Stan King gets so excited, he sort of starts stealing the limelight halfway through. Also from 1929, uh, a track called BB. by Jimmy Dorsey with Stan King on drums and uh, that was what did you say 1929 so yeah. what happened to him as after the sort of stock market crash and whatnot? good question well I mean just because I'm writing articles about all these guys um, and people like Stan King who made you know I don't know how many hundred records in their lives maybe even a thousand records you know he made a heck of a lot of records and I just it would be too much to write about if I were to cover all of their lives. So I've decided with my website to make a, a self-imposed cut-off point of January the 1st, 1930. Other people have, have specialised and, you know, do excellent stuff, writing and, 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 and podcasting and blogging and so on about swing. But for this, you know, for this sort of project, it's like 20s is, is the focus. So Stan King, yeah, he was, a, he was an, a massive alcoholic. That's the trouble. And it seems like he was a little bit erratic in his lifestyle he also never really read music i think it's just as 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 time went on he you know music became more and more organized you know in the swing era and everything the kind of the kind of um spontaneous excitement that stan king seemed to specialize in you know by the end of the 20s was was becoming less um sought after by bands and I think he just maybe wasn't quite able to, to get his life in order and, 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 you know, the sort of professional skills needed to, to keep cutting it in the, in, in the Big Apple, in the, you know, in the depression and everything where work was at a premium and it was, it was less easy for musicians to get along. Yeah, so he sort of seems to have drifted away and he, he uh, died in 1949. But a lot of the ideas that, that he came up with and the style that he was playing with on those, those tracks we heard a minute ago... Um, drummers like Gene Krupa, who was, you know, obviously quite a bit younger than him, but was coming up around about the same time, were, you know, in the in the 30s, would then really take those ideas and run with them. So he was an important stepping stone towards the, the swing era, really, of drumming. 
So we've got two other very sort of contrasting drummers now uh, to talk about. And secondly is Jasper Taylor, who I, I guess, personally first encountered on uh, Jelly Roll Morton's first record, which is Big Fat Ham. Absolutely. Which he recorded in 1923 with Jasper Taylor on, on washboard. But I mean, I, he, he also must have played drums, right? I mean, I think of him primarily as a washboard player because of that record. Yeah, I mean, he did play drums. Look, I mean, seeing as you mentioned that record, why don't we start by listening to that? Because that was, that yeah, was on my great. list of important... Uh, important milestones for Jasper Taylor. So as you say, yeah, the great Jelly Roll Morton, his first ever recording in Jelly Roll Morton's first record, Big Fat Ham from 1923 with Jasper Taylor on the washboard and a bunch of other um, (laughs) slightly dubious quality musicians. But uh, (laughs) anyway, you know, Morton in that time period was kind of traveling a lot and and tended to pick up people wherever he went. So he has these quite interesting early band recordings, which, which have like, you know, a lot of sort of random sounding musicians on them which which we don't think about you know the the general mass of his discography especially the mid to late 20 stuff has like all the great huge stars of the time yeah um but his early band records are really mm. quite varied well another interesting landmark for that record is the fact that that's probably as far as i can tell the first ever uh record to have a washboard on it the jazz you know, jazz washboard player um, Amazing. yeah so let's go back and sort of do a quick sort of uh, overview of Jasper Taylor because he had yeah, a, for sure. uh, he was one of the first uh, guys I wrote about because just the more I found out about the guy's life the more I was I- intrigued and fascinated and just thought wow you know somebody should make a film about this guy it's incredible mm. it's lo- <laughs> even even up to my cut off point of 1930 he had had an incredibly varied and bizarre and interesting life so he's not a, he's not a particularly famous drummer and you know there are probably a lot more deserving people uh, from a you know just in terms of what they left as a recorded legacy on on drum kit, but yeah, Jasper Taylor. So he was born in Texarkana, um, which oh, is obviously a, a, a city that crosses a book, several borders. I think of various different states. Yeah, Texas, right? Arkansas, and Louisiana. No, Louisiana. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, Scott Joplin was born there, I think, wasn't he? He was, and in yeah. nineteen nineteen oh three, Jasper Taylor 
claims that he would, you know, hear, hear Scott Joplin practicing. Ah. <laughs> um, Taylor himself was born back in 1894. Uh, okay. So he was, you know, he's from a bit of an older generation than, than some of these guys. Yeah. Then when he was uh, still a child, he, I mean, he played trap drums in school. He played sort of like in the marching band and stuff in school. And then in 1912, when he was 18, um, he joined this, uh, the Young Buffalo Bill Wild West show, um, in which he said that he sang, danced and played the drums. Huh. So he was then touring around America in this Wild West show, playing in parades and stuff. So he's just sort of ragtime. This is still in the ragtime era, you know? Yeah, right. Um, so he went all around America, went to Mexico, did all this sort of stuff. Also learned some music theory from a trumpet player who was in this this band. Yeah, around about sort of 1912, 13, around about then he started playing with in W.C. Handy's band. Um, and made some excellent recordings in New York in 1917, um, where he's playing xylophone. And he's incredible on the xylophone. Uh, on some and also on drums on others so we can hear him playing xylophone on uh that jazz dance and some drums on old miss which is a sort of jazz standard around that well, time these with handy's band this is with handy's orchestra okay, yeah yeah right so, so um, it's kind of like ragtime to jazz it's ragtime uh, to in, jazz right in the middle right but yeah. quite orchestrated you know it comes from a uh, sort yeah. of marching band uh, heritage. So, mm-hmm. although it's quite loose and, and ragged, you know, it's still quite organised, and there's you know tubers and trombones and stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So let's hear a bit of that jazz dance first, where he's playing xylophone. I mean, this will absolutely knock your socks off. It's incredible. Novelty xylophone, and then as I say, Old Miss Rag, which was a, a sort of standard of the time, where he's playing some drums. We can hear him playing woodblock and other sorts of early sort of ragtime, ragtime drumming style. Jasper Taylor with W.C. Handy, 
playing Ole Miss Rag, definitely a classic of that era. Would you say that was 1917? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So um, just after this, he was drafted into the uh, the army because, of course, the World War One still rumbling on. Right. Um, 365th Infantry, which was an all-black regiment. Um, mm. He went to France and was in the military band of that regiment. So they were, you know, marching to the trenches playing ragtime, which is a pretty incredible, uh, <laughs> incredible mental wow. image. Yeah. It wasn't the same, for people who are interested in this stuff, it wasn't the same regiment as the one that James Reese Europe was. Right, I was going to ask, right, so it wasn't but that it was, famous one. But that was the 369th Infantry, ah, this is the okay. 365th, it's a different regiment, but similar, yeah. exactly the same as the, you know, idea of the, the Harlem, Fighters, the Harlem yeah. Hellfighters. So if you've yeah. heard those records, this band was probably similar, but they didn't make any records. But you can imagine Jasper Taylor doing that stuff, having heard the, the stuff he did with Handy, you know, you can kind of join the dots there. So he's already been in a Wild West show and been in the, the, on the Western Front, Playing um, ragtime. Playing ragtime. Then he survives. He comes back to uh, back to the states, and then he's in Chicago, and he makes that record with Morton that we've already heard at the start of this uh, section. Right. So on that record, he's playing washboard. Um, he claimed later on that he'd seen a harmonica player uh, in the street somewhere who was strumming on some bamboo uh, canes made oh, into a wow. sort of mat, and he got the idea that you know a washboard would be louder. Um, <laughs> and so he got the idea of putting thimbles on his fingers and scraping a washboard. Um, right, wow. So that. So do you reckon that, I mean, that there's not recorded evidence of any other washboard in other genres like blues or like hillbilly music before this record of uh, Big Fat Ham? I, I haven't heard many blues or hillbilly records before 1923. Yeah, I guess not. No, because they're all sort later. Of, yeah, that that era of that recording uh, boom wasn't really until the electric era anyway later 20s early 30s yeah. exactly yeah. yeah so all these all these other guys like washboard sam and all that you know yeah they were uh, they were all later i think wow how interesting i'd love to be proved wrong but as far as i can find jasper taylor was the was the guy who really invented the idea of scraping i mean obviously there's there's instruments like the guero you know in, in other in you know latin right, cultures right, of course. yeah right that may be related but as far as i'm aware no one played jazz washboard until jasper taylor with Jelly Roll Morton. But to me, it sounds like he's playing a wooden washboard. Ah, uh, uh, yes, the famous wooden washboard. Yeah. Well, there, I've got a, a little article about trying to replicate the sounds of Jasper Taylor's washboard and building my own little sort of custom-made instrument to try and do that, which is all on the website. It's in, of yeah, have a, a look, because I remember when you did that, yeah. it was hilarious. I mean, Nick showed up to this gig one day and he said, I've done it, I've built this washboard, it sounds just like Jasper Taylor on the record. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, those that one was particularly built to imitate the sounds of the of the washboard that he used with a, a clarinet player called Jimmy O'Brien, who was sort of, again, a slightly forgotten figure, but he made a heck of a lot of records in the mid-20s. And uh, Andrew, you and I have obviously played a lot of this repertoire with uh, Dave Horniblow over the years in the, in the uh, Horniblow's Hot 3. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was the first I had heard any washboard sounding like that because I remember Dave, you know, Dave decided that we were going to play the, the, the or, you know, resurrect the memory of this obscure clarinet um, player of dubious quality, although I think he's pretty cool. But anyway, whatever history has recorded him as sort of a B-list player, you know. Yeah, he's good at what he does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, yeah. you know, the, the washboard on those records, I mean, it's even weirder sounding than the one on the Morton record. It has so many different pitches, and that's why yeah. you ended up building that thing, right, to try to get the sort of pitch Yeah, uh, although I later, I later found out that Taylor actually also plays Cigar Box on some of it. Yeah, um, so there's loads of... I mean, he made lots and lots of records of Jimmy O'Brien. You can hear him playing washboard. But 
perhaps the most famous uh, washboard record he made apart from the one with Morton was uh, a group he got together under his own steam which was called Jasper Taylor and his State Street Boys with an incredible band featuring the great Freddie Keppard sort of early New Orleans cornet player uh, Johnny Dodds on clarinet and Tiny Parham on piano The Stomp Time Blues I absolutely love this piece of music The last thing we can probably say about Taylor, I mean, he did, he, he did a whole load of other stuff. He played in quite a lot of blues records, played with some blues, female blues singers and stuff. Uh, all on washboard or also on drum set? All on, mostly on washboard, but we will finish by hearing a bit, him, a bit of him playing drum set with um, uh, an artist in a band that I know is very dear to your heart, Andrew, Fess Williams. Oh, yes, indeed. Um, when in 1928, uh, he made a couple of sides with uh, Fess and his Joy Boys. Um, uh, yeah, that was Fess's other band. It was when he repurposed somebody else's band, I think. Oh, um, really? Who's. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, okay. Dave Payton's, it says here on the discography, uh, Dave Payton's Regal Theatre Orchestra from Chicago. Ah. And, um, and Fess Williams repurposed them for this recording session under the name of Fess Williams and his Joy Boys. Right. Well, it's a great side. Um, Taylor, we hear him playing some nice sort of late 20s cymbal choke stuff and also some great woodblocks, offbeat mm. woodblocks, really sort of like mid to late 20s uh, south side of Chicago you know stomp style the Dixie Stomp with Jasper Taylor on drums
So yeah, Jasper Taylor, one of the earlier guys, you know, one of the sort of the the, the founders of jazz drumming, mm, mm-hmm. um, who's perhaps been and, a little bit overlooked. The founders of, of jazz washboard, the too. founder, I mean, of, yeah, yeah, the, the, the founder of jazz washboard, really. Yeah. Another sort of overlooked figure, like you said. I mean, there's mm. always somebody back in, you know, pioneering these ideas, and it's all. I find it always fascinating to sort of stumble upon these things. You know, you think you know who did something or somebody who made something famous, and then you hear somebody else doing it, you know, three or four or five or ten years earlier. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, like, it's interesting as well, you know, lots of people playing washboard at the moment around the world in, in jazz bands, and very few of them seem to be aware of Jasper Taylor. People know Jimmy Bertrand, people know Buddy Burton. Um, and, and Baby Dodds played washboard Baby Dodds playing, things, with, you know. playing with his brother, yeah. yeah. But people don't seem to know Jasper Taylor. And I think it's it's interesting because... His style of playing it is so different to all those other guys. Um, it's much more based around tapping the different sort of resonant areas to get different pitches out of the washboard. He doesn't scrape it all that much, um, and he certainly doesn't have, you know, all the little traps and bells and toys and you know, whistles and things that, uh, you know, the besetting sin of the modern washboard player in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um, or you know what I mean? So it's like he just plays yeah. the actual board. He just you know yeah, but he gets all, he all the sounds just he from it, which all is really the interesting. Sounds. Yeah, 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 and yeah. the groove is incredible. You know what I mean? He really digs in. So we'll we'll f- move on finally with. Uh somebody who's kind of the polar opposite really yeah <laughs> in in some ways except in some ways actually not because there's a there's a classical percussion link with both of ah, them true. with the, with the xylophone and and uh you know that kind of crossover stuff so we're going to finish up by looking at another one of my uh, favorites which is uh vic burton um who was a chicago and born and bred he grew up in chicago he was born in uh 1898 so a few years after jasper taylor um he was from a jewish background and he was quite well off. He was from, a, you know, unlike a lot of our sort of early jazz heroes, he was quite a sort of, um, aff- from a, quite an affluent background. Um, his father was a violinist and his brothers were musicians. And, you know, he's quite a sort of uh, bohemian upbringing, really, in, in Chicago. He started off playing, he was he was in a band led by John Philip Sousa during World War One, which was stationed in, in, in Chicago. He never, he never left Chicago, luckily. He didn't have to actually go over to France, but... Um, so he sort of met and, and got to know a lot of young musicians around that area who were probably into into that sort of music around them. Started writing writing songs and composing. He was also studying classical percussion at this time. Um, played a bit with some da- various different dance bands in the early 20s, but his real sort of first appearance was when he played with the Wolverines, um, which was a, um, a band featuring, uh, again, featuring Bix Beiderbecke. And Vic Burton was really impressed with them and, and decided to become their manager. Um, they, they already had a drummer, which was uh, Vic Moore, who's also got um, his own page on the, on the website, who was on the shortlist to be talked about today, but you know, didn't quite make the cut. Um, <laughs> but sometimes on, on sessions, Vic Moore would go and, and womanise, and Vic Burton would sit down behind the drums and play instead. Um, so, because he was perhaps a bit more of a, a polished drummer than than Moore was, so we can hear a bit of Vic Burton playing with the Wolverines um, in 1924. Uh, let's have uh, the Royal Garden Blues.
That's uh, Big Spider back there and the Wolverines with Vic Burton on drums and the Royal Garden Blues from 1924. Yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of cymbal and some, some woodblock and, you know, it's, it's, it's typical sort of mid-twenties recording traps, i.e. not full kit. But, you know, I think Ver- Burton's doing a heck of a lot with, with what he's got, you know, to be able to, to drive the music along in a sort of subtle way. And I think he only appears on three sides that the Wolverine's ever made. So, you know, he's, he was mostly there as a, in a, as a management, in a management capacity. But um, after that, he moved to, to New York City. So we're talking sort of mid-20, 1925 now. He moved to New York City and quickly uh, ends up playing with some of the people we've mentioned before, actually. Red Nichols and his, his sort of gang of, of artistic, clever, sort of cerebral uh, small group jazz um, and in fact he, him and Stan King alternate on quite a few sessions they were both kind of within the sort of New York session scene um, in the mid, mid-20s um, but Burton rather than you know we've, we've heard Stan King and his incredible sort of power that he comes up with later in the 20s and the you know the energy and, and interactiveness that he's, he's able to bring but really that wouldn't have been possible I think without without Burton and what he was doing slightly earlier but the other thing that he brought Burton brought was because he was completely trained classical percussionist, you know, he had lessons when he was a kid with the Chicago Symphony's principal percussionist and everything. So, and he played in lots of theatres and pit bands and stuff. So he was he was a fully, fully trained, legit percussionist. He could play timpani and he could play tune percussion and he could, you know, he could bring all these extra sounds. And with uh, Nichols's bands, particularly in sort of nineteen twenty five twenty six, he would often play what he called hot timpani, where he would play. He would bring pedal tuned timps, which was still quite a relatively new uh, piece of technology, into the studio and play bass lines, hot breaks, and even solos um, on timps. Which and is this a, was often in a band that didn't have bass. Didn't have bass, exactly. Unsurprisingly, this didn't really catch on because, first of all, who the hell can afford pedal <laughs> timps? Certainly yeah. not me. And, and not haul them to the studio. Haul them to every gig just to play, you know, a couple of hot breaks or a, or a bass line on one tune. But it's, yeah, so, it's so weird and so interesting, uh, uh, an example of, of drumming being done in a, in a small jazz context. I think we've really got to have some of it. So let's have... Um, oh, for sure. Let's have the Boneyard Shuffle, particularly the intro and the first chorus or so. You can hear him playing these timps um, behind the solo by um, Red Nichols. Thank you. 
Boneyard Shuffle by Red Nichols with Vic Burton on timpani. And I remember when I was, I don't know, 15 or something, and I first heard, like, I first heard Davenport Blues, and, and here he is on the timpani, and I just couldn't believe it, you know? I mean, there's so many things like that in 20s jazz where you just think, wait, what? Like, how is that allowed? But of yeah. course, everything was allowed because it was all brand new. Yeah, there, was no, there were no rules. There was no convention, yeah. And any, also, anything novelty was, was seen as being a good thing, not as something corny. Oh, well, that's unusual. Yeah, we'll stick that on the record because it's the idea of something being a bit old hat or kind of naff wasn't really... They hadn't, it hadn't been around long enough to, to have that kind of association, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, The other thing that Burton was really, really great at and I think sort of pioneered was um, we talked earlier on about choked cymbals and how everyone was playing choked cymbals. But obviously, if you're only playing the cymbal with one stick, there's a limit to how how fast you can play, how many notes you can play in in succession. You know, it's it's all done with one hand. Um, But Burton pioneered a technique where he could use the use the hand that was choking the cymbal um, underneath. It's a bit hard to explain, but if you. If you, as I say, I've only gone to the website. I've done a video where I can, where I sort of demonstrate how this is done, using the stick held underneath the cymbal with his with his spare fingers to play to play on the underneath to sort of tap the underneath of the cymbal at the same time as he was whacking it on the top with his other hand. So you've now got both hands playing, which means that he can play much more um, sort of rapid fire choked cymbal notes than anybody else you know until until everyone else caught on and then obviously you get kaiser marshall and all these other guys who are doing it just as well within about a year or so but when burton first came out with it i think a lot of drummers would have absolutely flipped their lids and not known what on earth that he was doing or how to get this sound because he was so incredibly skilled and had all these different interesting ideas for sounds like the timpani and the and the and the tricky cymbal that we call it He's really one of the first drummers to play whole choruses of solo, and really that hadn't happened regularly in any other band up until about then, or with any other drummer. So that's really worth mentioning, is that we're starting to get proper choruses of drum solo now, rather than just the odd hot break where it's a two-bar break or something in the middle of a, a dance band number. So I think maybe, maybe we should have a whole chorus of uh, Burton playing these, these mind-blowingly exciting, tricky cymbal um, Licks. Let's have let's have that's no bargain, which is a number we've played in in the Vitality Five in the past, um, and you'll see what I mean about how the symbol y- y- you can't quite get it because it's like the symbol sounds choked, but he's playing way too fast for it to be with just one hand. It's a great solo. It's a great number. That's no bargain. stuff there vic burton on that's no bargain red nickels and his five pennies from 1926 i mean that's a great one of the greatest bands of oh. of the era i think with arthur shutt on piano and eddie lang jimmy dorsey it's it's like an, it's an all-star band now it seems like an all-star band at, their, at that time they were just some guys you know they weren't <laughs> they weren't legends at that point you know they were still yeah. on the way up as it were but i mean yeah incredible but that was also the kind of the collegiate vibe and maybe not maybe Definitely. maybe a little more sophisticated arrangements and, and a little more hot than some of that college stuff but certainly in that scene i guess but also if you think of you know the sort of perceptions that people who, who are not so familiar with older jazz tend to think oh it's you know it's all rudimentary and crusty and it's just some guys sort of blowing through you know right yeah and it's like oh man the amount of subtlety and 
um, harmonic and rhythmic uh, complexity going on in there. It, you know, okay, it's not bebop, but it's it's not elementary at all. It's, no, it's, certainly it's, not. No. I mean, and there's always there's so much depth of you know of stuff happening in the twenties and diversity among among the jazz scene. That I think you know it's it's easy yeah. to overlook if you just come at it from listening to you know just a bit of Louis and King Oliver or whatever to yeah to overlook this stuff and and how how sort of subtle like you said it was and all that. absolutely so yeah so I mean that hopefully there you've you've got a, a bit of variety of some different examples of drummers from the from the twenties that are interesting and 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 cool and you can you know have some idea of of why i'm so obsessed and fascinated by this stuff and yeah i mean it is it's there's a it's a huge world you know on every instrument but uh it is i think like you said you know one thing that you know looking at this site that i guess really sticks out is just how uh the development of the instrument and the development of the music went hand in hand and i think that's maybe what makes drumming sort of unique in the in the evolution of jazz and the evolution of the drum set together yeah you know, because they were so close together you get you get a lot of innovation and a lot of like hugely different sounds you do that's quite right well thanks nick it's uh been great to hear all this stuff and um you know some some drummers that perhaps people don't always think about in the list of all-star jazz drummers and <laughs> as has been mentioned many times everyone should just go have a look over at the website drums in the 20s.com and uh I would say come out to a gig if you're in London, but at the moment there's no gigs. So if you're listening to this in later 2020 or any time in the future when live music has restarted again, God willing that will happen. Yeah, uh, you know, have a look at uh, Nick's website and go search him out if you're in London or the UK because he's uh, a fantastic musician. Yeah, well, I was thinking actually just uh, seeing as you're mentioning it. Obviously, we're recording this in our in our separate uh, quarantined isolation um, in the spring of 2020 during the coronavirus outbreak. I mean, yeah, it is pretty weird because we we it only is. live like eight miles away from each other, but yet we have to do it on uh, in in separate houses. So yeah, well, it's, it's, but it's, it's funny it's that way of things these days. I was thinking that you know, isn't it funny that the the 1920s began with a massive uh, flu p- a pandemic as well, <laughs> with the the so called Spanish flu that everyone was yeah. scared of, and obviously a lot of people lost their lives too. Um, so it just feels it feels right in a way that we're beginning the 20s again with a with a massive with, global with a, disease, a horrendous outbreak. global <laughs> yeah. pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's made Scary for stuff. plenty of time to do things like uh, make podcast episodes and, and research drums in the 20s. So, you know, probably by the time this is all over, the website will be three times bigger than it is now. <laughs> well, thanks, man. And um, stay tuned for more episodes every first and third Wednesday and every Friday a track of the week here on The Superior Rag. <laughs> <laughs>